Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we're going to be talking about TV Pilot 201. You've hopefully listened to our TV Pilot 101 episode, so you already know the basics of writing a pilot script. But in this episode, we want to help you be more proactive in the way you write your spec pilot, coming up with compelling titles, log lines, as well as setting things up in your script and keeping the reader interested. But first, on this week's Paper Scraps segment, we're taking a look at an interesting article that came up recently, Alex. Yes. In fact, uh, Reuters obtained some internal company documents from Amazon, which revealed how Amazon evaluates their TV shows to be successful or not. And that is through the metric of cost per first stream. Now, if you work in marketing or sales, or even if you watched any Shark Tank episodes, really, this metric shouldn't be shocking. It's kind of the OTT equivalent to a cost per customer acquisition. So it's interesting to see that Amazon has translated that same metric into something actually tangible for views. So essentially what cost per first stream means, this is the monetary cost associated to getting someone to click play on an episode of a show. Now, how they calculate that metric is pretty straightforward. It's basically the divide of shows total production and marketing expenses by the number of people who stream that program first after signing up. Wow, that's really interesting. I mean, it's like we keep saying with these streaming services, they don't operate like traditional networks. They don't need to bring in 6 million viewers on a show to make it successful. They are looking for the widest range of more niche shows to bring in the widest audience rather than the deepest audience. So, you know, if they've got one show that's going to get this whole demographic and all of them are buying subscriptions to Netflix just for that show, then that's really successful for them. 100%. And if we look at those numbers, and we'll link that article in the show notes, broadly speaking, let's look at a couple of interesting examples from Amazon. So the first one is Men in the High Castle, which apparently cost $72 million in production and marketing costs, and attracted about 1.5 million new subscribers around the world based on Amazon's accounting. So that translates to roughly $63 per new subscriber. Now keep in mind, a new Amazon Prime subscription is roughly speaking $99. So anything about that is essentially profit for them. On the flip side, you've got Good Girls Revolt that many people regret that show to be canceled, but it cost $81 million, more than Man in High Castle. Wow, how is that possible? I do not know. Maybe production, maybe marketing. Uh, Both of those are sort of pure piece in a way, so I can definitely see why it's expensive. I did not expect it to be more expensive than Man in High Castle. Mm. But either way, with $81 million in production costs, it only had 52,000 first streams worldwide by Prime Watchers which made its cost per new customer about $1,560, which is quite substantial from that $63 figure that we had for Man in the High Castle. Right, that makes a lot more sense when you look at it that way. In case you don't know, Good Girls Revolt was canceled after that first season. Personally, I found these numbers fascinating, especially because none of the OTTs are releasing figures for their total audiences. They're kind of a black box to everyone, including their own creatives. But looking at this data, it's clear in this case that Amazon is using that cost per first stream as a way to quantify how much their content is gaining them 
them new Prime members, especially since Prime members buy more goods from Amazon than non-members. In fact, I'm a Prime member myself, and I buy so much content and so much stuff from Amazon. It's crazy. Yeah, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. Amazon is first and foremost a tech company that are built around their online marketplace, and this is just sort of one branch of that, and they're trying to feed all of these customers back into the rest of their business to create more profit. Totally, and I think the reason why they're so sort of granular about that cost is since they started that whole production end of their company, the cost of making new shows have ballooned up to, I believe the figures are now hovering $5 billion in content development and production costs for Amazon. That is one of their most expensive branches in that company. But if you look at how Amazon quantifies that value per content, I think you can already see some limitations. And the first one is that it's only cost per first stream calculation. So that means that the worth they're valuing their shows is not based on how many people are watching that show, but how many people are joining Prime specifically to watch this program first. So this doesn't account for people who signed up to Prime to watch some random episode and then go down this rabbit hole of TV shows. If you happen to watch Bosch right after seeing Mozart in the Jungle, this will not help decrease Bosch's cost per first stream, which is obviously a figure that you want to be lower than higher. If you look at Google's Revolt again, that had an abysmal first stream cost, but they still got a total US viewership of 1.6 million people. So clearly this was still too low for a show that cost over $80 million, but it is worth pointing out that there are other metrics out there than pure cost per first stream. And I'm sure there are plenty of HBO shows on the market pulling under 2 million viewers a week while still costing in that same range. Yeah, I feel like at some point you have to be looking at retention numbers. How many people are buying to go watch this show and then keeping their subscriptions for a year or more. I mean, surely that's valuable knowledge to them because they're going to buy their second subscription that next year around as well. So I feel like given, especially given this information was just kind of acquired by a news company to kind of shed some light on it. Maybe we don't have the whole picture here just yet as to how they are evaluating everything. Oh, definitely agree with that statement. And in fact, I think Amazon is known to be playing a little long-term game. Amazon is known as a company to never be making profit because all they care about is acquiring that customer, acquiring people's purchases and, and people POs. So that is why I think in part they're only valuing in this instance, the cost per first stream is because that's only one metric they're looking at overall. But I think it'll be interesting to see how that whole cost per acquisition uh, evolves in the future, especially with very expensive shows down the line like Lord of the Rings, which should be costing Amazon upwards of half a billion dollars just for two seasons of content. Yeah, and eventually, I think the longer a service exists, you're going to reach a plateau with the number of new subscribers you can attract. Eventually, everyone's going to be aware of Amazon and Amazon Prime, and they're either going to get it or they're not. I think your, your new subscription numbers are going to kind of hit a level off point. That's why Netflix is banking up so much now on international markets is because they've essentially saturated that American local market. So now they're looking at developing all those shows in India and China, East Asia, all those different locations, South America, all those places that they did not have a presence there in maybe in 2010, but now they're really hungry for that content and those eyeballs. That yeah, makes a lot of sense. <laughs> All right, so going into pilot 201, we are looking at more than just the basics of your pilot. Uh, we're going to start by looking at some of the stuff around your pilot, I guess, these kind of meta elements to consider. Yeah, and so in other words, that is, how does this script fit within your roster and what can you do to find that out? So why is this the first thing we're discussing here? Well, most people figure out how to pitch their show or how their show represents their own story as the last thing they do. They write a script, a pilot, or a feature, and then they go, okay, 
Now, how do I sell this or how do I use this as a sample? Well, maybe once in a while, it's fun to get into a car and start driving without any sense of direction. But most days, it's better to have some sort of plan. Especially if you drive yourself off a cliff. Yes, clearly. That's an amazing metaphor for our lives right now. But that is why you need to be more proactive in the way you're handling this decision. Maybe you have a bunch of pilot ideas, or maybe you're struggling to find what you should be writing next. Either way, think of how this piece of material that you're about to write is going to advance your career, or get you noticed. Now, that doesn't mean everything you ever write needs to be ultra calculated. You should still be writing something you're passionate about, but it is one way of clarifying what that thing is. It's kind of about honing down and focusing your vision instead of ADDing all over your projects. Yeah, I mean, it's a huge time investment to develop and write an original pilot, probably several months or more. Um, so you really want to make sure that you are doing it uh, in a way that's going to be most helpful to you. Now, what we are not recommending is trying to chase market trends or write what you think people are buying or want to read. I mean, there are a couple of problems with that. Firstly, the lead time for TV production is so long that even if you wrote a brilliant vampire show to chase some hot streak of vampire shows, even if it was amazing and they made it, it wouldn't make it to air for another three or four years, by which time it kind of feels hacky and overdone. Yeah. Uh, maybe it's all about werewolves now. Who knows? Hold on. I got a pitch. It's a werewolf who becomes a vampire. Ooh, werepire coming to CW. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but is it based on an IP? Uh, it's based on sexy teens and that's all that matters. So anyway, so aside from that whole element where just practically you can't chase trends in any sort of timely fashion. Secondly, it's just not in your best interests as a writer to be going after what you think other people want. You need to stay true to your passions and your strengths and that kind of brand that you are or will be known for. Just because you're trying to get a rep and you hear some manager is looking for more genre sci-fi writers, don't suddenly try to crank out an original hour-long sci-fi pilot if you're a half-hour dramedy writer. This is it's not going to end well for you. That said, there's nothing wrong with looking at what kind of shows are evergreen and people are always looking for, perhaps every development season. You know, fresh takes on procedurals, whether that be cop, medical, legal, soapy character dramas, clever genre premises and worlds. You know, the more grounded, the better. Even if you never sell that pilot, at least you know that there will always be a ton of new shows that it's going to be a strong sample for. Yeah, and the keywords here are fresh takes. Again, it's all about what you're bringing to the table, which we'll talk more about in this episode. But the thing is, you can't control trends, as we just said, or how your content will be received. But there are some elements you can figure out earlier that can help you write or improve that awesome pilot script. And the first one, for me at least, has always been figuring out that title, even if it's just a temporary one. And you can say, wait, wait, I haven't written my pilot yet. How can I come up with some awesome title? Well, perhaps I commented from this marketing side of my brain, but I always feel that once I know what my show is called, the idea of what my show is has been sort of crystallized and I know what I'm writing towards. It's not some ephemeral goal like, untitled podcast about television writing and other things. It's <laughs> called Paper Team. It's something tangible. And maybe I'll even play around with a title page I briefly created with some interesting font, uh, although that's probably procrastination. I don't know if you do that, Snake, but... Uh, no, no, I, I really don't. You don't really come up with some PDF award document with just that title, some magical font? I feel like that's it's a sort of... A, uh, at least the font is a later process for me. The title mm-hmm. is very important, though. I mean, for real, like, do not underestimate a good title. Like, when I was working as a CE, uh, we would be scouring through hundreds of screenplay competition winners and placers, and a catchy or interesting title would stand out and at least make me want to read the logline. 
And then on the flip side of that, cliche or unoriginal titles, sometimes you would see like three scripts with the exact same title in the same competition. <laughs> that would automatically make me roll my eyes and put a kind of a black mark against it already. Now, your goal is to get people incrementally interested one step at a time in your material. Step one is the title. Step two is the logline. Step three might be a synopsis or a one pager. And then step four perhaps is your script. So if one of those elements is weak, they'll never even open page one in the first place. Yeah. And in fact, every time a friend pitches me their pilot over dinner or drinks, inevitably, I ask them, what is that show called? And they always preface their answer with, so this isn't what I want to call it, but for now it's called XYZ. Uh, I know it's not a great title. It's ABC uh, would be much better. Yeah, yeah exactly. But uh, often that XYZ or ABC title is something broad or generic that isn't super evocative of what their awesome pilot is about. So think about classic TV shows. Breaking Bad isn't called The Chemist, although that'd be cool. I think that's a new CBS show coming out in 2020. <laughs> uh, Lost, Lost, the TV show Lost on the ABC, wasn't called Weird Island, right? <laughs> it should have been. Uh, should have been. Uh, Heroes wasn't called Powers. Powers was called Powers, and look where that got it. <laughs> <laughs> now, that doesn't mean you need to be super cute with a title. You can also be on the nose and still be very relevant to the show, especially if it is some kind of workplace show. Think about any of Mike Schur's TV shows like The Good Place, The Office, Parks and Rec. These outright state what that show is about. And the same goes for dramas. Think of all the crime procedurals like CSI, NCIS, and even some genre shows like The X-Files or Battlestar Galactica. It's kind of like that Arrested Development scene with the dead dove bag. It's pretty clear what's going to be inside it before you open it. Pigeons. Yes, exactly. <laughs> now, you can still be more creative. I mean, titles can be interwoven and referential to the themes and the core of what your show is about. This Is Us on NBC is a pretty generic title in of itself, but it elicits an emotional reaction, either positive or negative. It frames you to see this show as either, well, this is me or this isn't me. If you're writing a show about a unique work environment with people going through specific adversities, why not have the title of your show be an expression unique to that workplace, which also serves as a reference to what your characters are going through? Like Paper Jam. Paper Jam? <laughs> You know, if you're working in a production office, your, your printer is constantly jamming when you're running scripts. Sure. Why not? <laughs> I was going to say Mad Men. I think that's an actual show that exists. But <laughs> Mad Men is both a play on the expression of ad men and obviously the emotional premise of their characters. They're all insane people, as we all know. Now, it wasn't called New York Advertising because that could be about anything. And it doesn't actually speak to the period in which Mad Men was set. And it also wasn't called Don Draper because who the hell is Don Draper? Yeah, I mean, when I'm coming up with my own titles for stuff, I always like to put some kind of inherent juxtaposition or conflict in the title itself because it automatically suggests comedy. For example, I have a sample called Mr. Doom, and that's an incredibly simple title. It's kind of weirdly incongruent. You'd expect to hear Dr. Doom or Professor Doom, but Mr.? And that's because he's a loser, single father, and former insurance salesman who's now trying his hand at supervillainy. And the show is about him being pulled between two worlds, fatherhood, mister, and villainy, doom. And the title encompasses that perfectly. Uh, another sample is called Horsewomen, and that's because you'd expect to see horsemen of the apocalypse, so you instantly understand, oh, I get it. It's what if the four horsemen of the apocalypse were women. And that's all summarized in one word. You know, look at the other examples like Faulty Towers, Transparent, Arrested Development. These are all really clever titles in that same vein that are illustrative of what the show is about without being super obvious or corny. Yeah, and there's not really any formula for what a good title is, 
But on that note, there's some basic ideas that can help you come up with one. I mean, first, as already mentioned, it should be thematically or narratively related to your show. Then you want to make it sticky, like the examples that Nick gave. Uh, think of short, clear, and memorable titles in fiction. The Great Gatsby, The Handmaid's Tale, The War of the Worlds. These are titles that stick with you, but you don't necessarily know what they mean until you read the piece. Also, think of your central themes and questions. Like I said, Lost wasn't called Weird Island because it's not just about some weird island. It's about characters literally and figuratively lost in their lives. Breaking Bad may be about a chemist teacher, but it's also about a man becoming evil, also known as Breaking Bad. Now that you've figured out your title, the next element people often wait until the last minute to figure out is the logline. Sure, let me quickly write in 30 seconds this single sentence that will summarize the entirety of my intricate narrative and complex relationships of my leads. Uh, perhaps even more than with titles, in fact, knowing your logline before you start your draft can help you focus on what really matters. Even if they're not the official loglines, you can take a look at Wikipedia or IMDB for examples of good, short, concise, and effective loglines of existing shows to give you a leg up on your competition. So here's my quote-unquote formula for the necessary elements of a logline that you kind of can't do without. A protagonist must do action in pursuit of a goal despite obstacles or else stakes. It's as simple as it comes, really. I mean, there are other optional elements you can put in there. Like at the start, you might want to say in world slash setting, a protagonist must do action. Or at the end, you might want to touch on the theme explored. A protagonist must do action in pursuit of goal despite obstacles or else stakes because theme, you know, uh, to discover what it means to be human or what lengths a man will go to to gain power. Yeah. And when you're crafting that logline, you want to attract the eye of the reader. Much like with that title, you want the person to lean in and be actively curious about what's inside that script. If your show is, let's say, a procedural with a very familiar work environment, then a logline blandly stating someone doing their job isn't super compelling. So for example, Jessica is an ex-cop who spends her retirement investigating crimes in her neighborhood. Okay, I get what the show's about, but it's kind of a bland way of expressing the emotion behind the character. So here's another take. After family is murdered during a break-in, an ex-cop battles her inner demons by tracking down criminals in her retirement community. You are immediately hooked emotionally by the opener. Her family was murdered. Then you learn the week-to-week -week premise, an ex-cop investigating crimes, which is set in a unique world, retirement community. I think the worst thing you can do in a logline is just be unclear about your show. So many people try to be mysterious or coy in their loglines, like a story about a former medical doctor living in San Francisco. It's, what? Like, <laughs> that means nothing. Like, you, if you only tell us about the characters or a character, then you're asking the reader to just assume that these characters will be put into some kind of interesting situation or action. You're basically asking your reader to come up with the show for you. So you need to make sure that there is a clear conflict, action, and an engine or arc suggested in your logline. You need to let them see the potential from all the pieces you have in play and that it has some sort of direction or momentum. So if we take that same logline and fill in a few more details like a disgraced former medical doctor must work harvesting black market organs in the seedy underbelly of San Francisco in order to make enough money to save his daughter from her terminal illness, well then we have a show. At the same time, though, don't overburden us with details. It's just the logline. It's the need to know elements. If you can take something out and it still makes sense, you probably should. We don't need to know about a school teacher who smokes Marlboros and has two best friends, Jenny and Mike, and a mean landlady named Doris if the show is about him trying to coach the football team to victory. 
Now this is before you're writing that script, but on the flip side, let's say you do have a script that no one is reading. Maybe you're not getting the traction you want because the logline isn't sexy enough. And I hate to say this because how sexy a logline is should not really be an important factor, but this has been true with features for decades. People wanted that high concept, high premise, complex logline to really justify putting in 90 pages of their time. But now that everyone and their mother has their own TV pilots, the same is starting to apply for TV. So what do I mean by sexy? Don't send a rose with your script, please. That has happened to many people, I know. But I had this conversation actually with a friend recently where we posited that some of our more classic or traditional pilot scripts, perhaps procedural ones, were not being read outside of people who already wanted to read us because the logline was very reflective of that script, but it was just not groundbreaking enough compared to any other show. And this ties in a way to what we said about chasing trends. And even if you're banked on something as secure as a procedural, be aware that sometimes you may want to find some compromise between writing something that is compelling to you and something that will be compelling for someone else to read. And in fact, on that note, you gotta ask yourself, where does this sample fit in your arsenal and your roster and how it is going to be useful to you as the next stepping stone? Yeah, I think a lot of people don't realize that you do need a slight variety of samples even within the same genres and niche. So it's even within, it's choose a specific niche like animated comedy writing, there are a number of samples you can have that will open up your options for staffing. You can do a half hour adult swim type pilot like Rick and Morty. You can do a half hour broad audience primetime pilot like Bob's Burger. And you can do an 11 minute kids pilot like SpongeBob or Gravity Falls. You can even go younger and write for stuff like a bridge or a preschool. It just depends on what you would be comfortable working in and where your interests lie. And the same is true for hour long drama. Even within the specifically genre drama space, there are supernatural procedurals, historical fantasies, grounded sci-fi, etc. Even in more traditional drama, you still have primetime soaps and gritty serialized HBO dramas, all of which still fall under that category of drama writing. In fact, that's what people mean when they're asking you, what kind of stuff are you writing? Uh, On a basic level, obviously, they're asking whether you write comedies or dramas, but really, they want to know what type of stories and genres you write in. So what is your pilot about? Well, it's about this time-traveling cop who investigates this conspiracy. But there's also this great world-building about modern society and the oppression of the middle class through the perspective of three clowns at a circus. What What the hell is this show? Uh, To be honest, I kind of want to see this show now. But realistically, I have no clue what network, what genre, (laughs) what format it is. I mean, clowns in the circus? Big little clowns. Uh, Big little clowns, yes. Coming soon to HBO. Uh, But the clearer you are about what TV pilot this one is, the clearer it will be for anyone else reading it. So as mentioned, writing a CBS com drama is not the same thing as writing some Netflix sci-fi epic. So your pilot, especially when you're first starting out, should clearly be defined. Having a range of samples available, even within your niche, is useful, as long as it's actually what you want to write and are good at, because you never know what the execs and producers are looking for to staff their shows or put on their projects. One great sample sometimes just isn't good enough, because it's not a one-size-fits-all deal, and you will lose out on jobs even if they liked your writing because it wasn't close enough to the tone or the world or the format of the show that you're being put up for for staffing. And flowing on from that, uh, we've spoken before about having, you know, your interesting spiel about your life and how you came to be a writer, but now we actually want to look a little more closely at how you can show your specific personal connection to the material of the pilot that you've just written. 
Yeah, so how you approach pitching and explaining that specific TV pilot to other people will be very important factor in its success. So in my mind, before I go on pitching, there are three questions I ask myself. One is, why is this emotionally resonant to me? Number two is, why is this emotionally resonant to them? And number three is, why is this emotionally resonant to now? So let's elaborate for a second. So first one is, why is this emotionally resonant to me or you if you're writing the pilot? And this ties back to your story and your brand. And we have dedicated episodes on that topic alone. So I would refer to those when it comes to linking your personal journey to what the stories and characters are reflecting about you. And now the second thing is, why is this emotionally resonant for them? And this is when your research comes in. If you're pitching to HBO, that's a drastically different approach from pitching to Freeform. And in fact, if you've honed down on the premise and take of your pilot and you already have a script, chances are you won't be pitching to such different outlets. But either way, you need to know what makes this TV show special for this particular person and network. And maybe, in fact, you know the sensibilities of the executives you're speaking to, in which case you can try tailoring it to them. Yeah, this is the kind of information that you're going to be trying to gather when you're going out on your general meetings is uh, what kind of stuff is the company at large looking for? And then specifically, what kind of stuff is this executive who you're building this relationship interested in and excited by? What kind of stuff do they watch on TV? What do they want to bring into their company and champion? And you can help kind of uh, filter into that. And people want to share passions with one another. So it's a great point for you to lean in and share that passion and that emotion for that material with this person who's also hopefully passionate about the same kind of genre. So finally, why is this emotionally resonant to now? Think of how The Handmaid's Tale is so relevant to the current political climate in our country. And I know it was pitched long before the election, but that doesn't negate the fact that it still was politically relevant back then. And the same goes for all those dark and gritty shows that came following 9-11. Battlestar Galactica, for example, is a compelling exploration of what it means to live, survive, and move on after a massive attack on your homeland. And that clearly was in response to 9-11 in many other ways. But the idea here is that you want to narrow down that pitch to all three elements. Why is this emotionally resonant to you, to them, and to now? And then you've got some winning pitching to do. So that's all well and good thinking about that on an intellectual level, but how do we translate those elements into a pilot script on the page and keep that reader interested and reading? Yeah, I mean, the worst thing you can do in a script is remind the reader that they are reading a script. That could mean different things. So let's say the story or the characters are boring while the reader is going to be forcing themselves to turn that page or the prose or the page are very dense visually. So they're consciously keeping count of when they turn that page. Or maybe the pacing is extremely slow, so they barely want to turn that page. So the idea is how do you counteract that reader fatigue or lazy finger? Yeah, I think basically anything that leads to confusion as well is going to remind them and bump them out of that experience. If they're confused about who is who or where we are or what is happening, you know, if they have to stop and go back a few pages to be like, wait, who was Jessica again? Or hang on, he just pulled out a cell phone, I thought we were in 1973, or they have to go back and reread a line for it to make sense, then you have instantly pulled them out of immersion, and you get maybe one of those max before they just get frustrated and put your script down. On that note, some of these we've mentioned in greater details in their respective Paper Team episodes, which we'll mention throughout this one, but some points are worth highlighting for pilots specifically, so let's get down to it. 
right? So under the category of character, as we all know, Alex now has a tattoo that reads TV as a character's medium. So put that in the show notes and we won't have to say it again. Thug life. (laughs) But we're going to dive into some more specifics of character. If you want to dive even deeper than that, you can check out some of our other episodes where we've covered things like this, such as PT-46, TV Characters 101, and PT-72, Analyzing Great TV Characters. But today we're going to touch on some of the finer points of writing characters in your pilot. And the first one is character introductions. Yeah, I feel like most people underwrite their character introductions in my experience. Look, I get it. You're trying to keep the pace flowing and not pull the reader out of the story like we've been saying. But if there's one place you can afford to do that a little, it's here. It's so important to set us up with everything that we need to know about our key characters from the get-go. You can afford to do more than that one line or sentence. You can do two or three or a whole paragraph if you need it. Whatever you do, don't just give us name, comma, age for a lead character. The reader deserves more than that. And if you want them to be invested in the characters and their journey, you're going to need to give us a lot more to work with. Yeah, and in fact, this goes back to what makes your TV pilot and your TV show unique. Anyone can write John, 25 in their description, but only you can prevent forest fires. Uh, sorry, I mean, only you can write down unique character descriptions and introduction set in that world because it is so unique to you. And I recommend researching and reading character descriptions from all your favorite shows and movies and compare them to how they are introduced visually in the finished product. Also, make sure they're not being introduced in confusing ways. So let's say your lead is meant to be some bumbling idiot. Well, maybe a serious TED Talk is not the best venue for his first scene, unless maybe this is a comedy and you're playing out on that expectation. So aside from character introductions, you should also be looking at a character perspective. One element of that is... Does the reader have someone they can identify with? And it doesn't have to be in a positive or negative way, but every pilot needs at least one cipher for the audience, and it is usually the lead. So Farscape is a great example of a pilot that pushes you into this alien world with very little hand-holding, specifically because you're living this experience through the eyes of the lead character, John Crichton, who doesn't understand what the hell is going on around him. This leads to another point, and that is you want to keep your reader interested in the story by making the audience play alongside the lead character of that world. Yeah, I mean, there are really three positions the audience can be in uh, in relation to the characters and perspective. They can be behind the characters, alongside them, or ahead of them. So do the characters know more than us, or are we catching up? Are we finding things out at the exact same time as the characters? Or do we know what's about to happen, and we're waiting to see how it's going to affect the characters and when they are going to find out? These positions can change scene by scene, moment by moment. It doesn't have to be true the whole way through the pilot, but knowing about them and these perspectives and using them effectively is a great way to keep your reader invested by giving them the right amount of information at the right time, as well as leaving them wanting to know more. Yeah, in fact, one thing to keep in mind in any story is that you rarely, if ever, want the audience to be ahead of your lead character. Having foreknowledge can be good in some respects, maybe if you're doing a non-linear story or going for some dramatic irony thing. But if the main character is the one playing catch-up to something that we, the audience, already know, it is just boring TV. Think of detective stories. If we know who the killer is and it takes 30 minutes for the cop to figure out something that we already know all the way through, we're going to feel frustrated and we will lose interest fast. Yeah, it's usually a technique in comedy. For example, the Simpsons episode where everyone in town knows Marge is pregnant before Homer does. And then we play all the fact that literally everyone except for the main character knows this thing off for comedy. But it is harder to use in drama. 
Yeah, in fact, you can play with those expectations and keep that audience guessing. You can set up certain clues that lead the reader to assume that Lucy is the killer, classic Lucy. She's always the one killing people. But then, right as you think that, the lead character cashes in on the same theory. It's Lucy. I knew it all along. But it turns out the lead was baiting the real killer, Patrick. He was the actual person who murdered that CEO. You're surprised the lead character outsmarted the killer, and we all win Emmys based on this amazing twist. We're just uh, distributing our Emmys right now. Here you go. Oh, Alex, here's yours. Here's thank mine. You. Great. Just put them on. Oh, uh, I got a speech. I want to thank uh, Paper Team for this amazing award. <laughs> so what about those character dynamics and relationships? How can we make the most of them in our pilot scripts? Well, the lack of a clear, defined character dynamic within your pilot is, in fact, an element that can really slow down a read. TV shows are essentially soap operas because, fundamentally, all shows are based on character relationships. Use that opportunity to be playful with how your different leads interact with one another. Do we understand their relationship in a clear and concise manner? How do you express that within their dialogue and in scene work? you got to milk all those little moments in your pilot. Yeah, I think it's really easy to fall into the trap of your ensemble of characters acting as a group hive mind when you're writing. You know, the gang does this or they all go there, but it becomes much more interesting when you break them down into the constituent parts and think about how each of them would act and react to any given situation. Suddenly, the choice your lead character made might actually be challenged by his best friend because of their different goals or outlooks instead of everyone just going along with it because the story wants them to. Or perhaps our lead is convinced by another character to do something else that they normally wouldn't. And then we get to explore the plot and character repercussions of that choice. You know, that kind of conflict always equals story. An element of that is understanding what the different agendas are for each character. You want them to have some kind of agency. You know, we keep repeating, there's a huge issue in this industry about female characters having agency in their shows and in their pilots. So that's an element to keep in mind is, do these characters have agency? Do they have their own needs and wants? And how do they interact with one another through those? Yeah, and another important piece of that is how you distinguish each of the characters and also how they're kind of reflective of one another or foils to one another. What are the real opposing dynamics between them? You know, characters should never just be generated at random and then mushed together to make an ensemble. Good supporting characters in some way will always reflect, contrast, or parallel aspects of your lead character or characters. If your lead is a cop struggling with his morals in a corrupt precinct, then there should be a character who shows what it's like when someone goes fully down that rabbit hole and is all out dirty cop and soulless. There should probably also be a character who's the only good cop left and sticks by his morals even in the face of danger. Now, whether you make the good cop or the bad cop your lead's partner or boss or antagonist or lover, that's entirely up to you. But notice how the dynamics of your story shift when you move those roles around. Mm. It's suddenly a very different story and show if the bad cop is the lead's partner rather than his antagonist. And that's what you're aiming for is this innate connection between every character, not just on a plot level, but you know, this deeper character and thematic levels as well, such that every piece is a different but necessary and important part of the machine. And this machine creates story precisely because of how each of those pieces interact. Yeah, and this should obviously be reflected in your cast of characters. Be diverse. And I don't just mean the gender or ethnicity of that character. What is their socioeconomic status? What is their personal background? Why are they on this show instead of somebody else? You want to have something that reflects the world you live in instead of just some abstract idea of what you think it is. And speaking of the world, the whole world of the show and the setting is another really important piece to draw a reader into your pilot. You need to think about how can you make your fictional world relevant and resonant to a reader. 
Perhaps it draws on their sense of nostalgia and childhood, a la Stranger Things or Ready Player One for a feature example. Perhaps the world is a what-if scenario where we can explore the possibility of what would happen if global warming wiped out half of Earth's population, or say we lived in a matriarchal society where men were oppressed and seen as inferior, because all of those things speak to the state of our world today. And perhaps it's just a very unique and specific setting with its own interesting quirks and ticks, like in the FX show Fargo or an even more specific locale like a, a neighborhood pizza shop or an underground den of hackers operating on the dark web, where we are granted an insight into a world that the audience has never encountered before. There are so many more options that can help you to tell your story and draw in that audience than just a generic, oh, it's uh, set in modern day Los Angeles. Unless you're writing a reboot of Escape from LA, in which case I'll definitely sign up. But really, the world building is such an important tool in your arsenal, especially while you're writing that pilot. And world building does not have to just be about science fiction or fantasy lands. Nick gave some examples just now. Great world building is relevant to every TV show, including historical dramas and even procedurals or comedies. Parks and Recreation did an incredible job building their own version of a living, breathing small town in America full of quirky characters with their own agendas. Homicide, Life on the Street is considered one of the greatest shows of all time in part thanks to its complex portrayal of a homicide unit in Baltimore's police department. So be aware that whatever the world, whatever the t-shirt you're writing, you have that opportunity to bank on world building. And in fact, we recommend you check out PT44 World Building 101 for more information on creating a unique and compelling setting for your pilot. And even PT60 Tone in TV Writing to really help set up your audience's expectations. So what about the structure of the script? Now, when you're thinking of structure for your pilot, you might be thinking about the obvious cliches and tropes of starting in the middle of the action, you know, the in-media res, uh, the voiceover introduction. I bet you're wondering how I ended up here. Or, you know, flashbacks or something. All of which, of course, can work if done well. But at least for me, they shouldn't be your first port of call when you're figuring out how to actually make your pilot compelling. Yeah, that's the classic thing of you want to master the rules before breaking the rules. And a lot of new writers try to go with those flashy methods of storytelling that are available to them instead of the simplest. And they may tell themselves that traditional storytelling is boring, but the reality is they're probably too scared of having nothing to say in some linear traditional format. And even if you piece together in a linear way all the flash forwards and all the flashbacks have lost, you will still get a unique and interesting story for the most part. But can you say the same thing about your own weird non-linear postmodern narrative? Be aware of those traps. I really think that structurally the most important thing for your pilot is having well-crafted acts, whether that's two acts, three acts, four, seven, whatever it is, and solid act breaks. You know, you need to be considerate of not letting your act run too long or too short and making sure that you're building the action towards those big tentpole reveals, reversals, and turns that come at the end of each act and make that reader go, holy crap, and want to read on. Now, especially if you are new to writing pilots, don't just write a giant actless slab of story and hope that it works, because it won't. You can listen to some of our earlier episodes like PT-15 Act Breaks, PT-61 Teasers and Cold Opens, and PT-54 Analyzing Great Pilots for more insight on how to make your pilot shine structurally. Like a good pizza, you know, doing something well like cheese and tomato sauce can be a hundred times better than trying to get fancy and just making a confusing mess. I'll just ask Ninja Turtles. I will. Uh, yes, <laughs> we all know that person. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, to that point of convoluted mess and simple storylines, you are still allowed to think long term if you're writing a pilot. So feel free to set up minor mysteries or start overall arcs 
But beware that this is not what your entire pilot should be about. Even a show as dense as Game of Thrones still started by telling the somewhat intimate family story of the Starks. They did not immediately go for the White Walkers outside of the opening teaser, which was there to, as the name implies, tease the audience. Can you imagine if Game of Thrones had done one scene introducing every single story arc that would have been <laughs> over the entire show and then just had that one introductory scene and ended the pilot? That would have been god-awful. And I think that was probably the first version of pilot. I mean, the first version of pilot is notorious to be pretty bad, uh, probably because of exposition issues. Speaking of, if you want your reader to not only finish your script, but order another round of drinks and scripts, then give them a satisfying experience to begin with. Look at the pilot of Modern Family and This Is Us on NBC. On the surface, both are pretty straightforward stories about three different families. They are entertaining in of themselves. But what pushes both shows and pilots over the edge, and probably the reason why they got picked up initially, was that ending twist that connected emotionally all those characters to the same branch. It's kind of like that small eureka moment that you're giving to the audience. And in both cases, it's something completely unexpected since neither shows are set in genre worlds, which would have been known to have twists. So what can be your version of that? Yeah, I, I think the number one reason most pilots fold down plot-wise is because they're trying to do too much at once. It is a difficult task to set up an entire world, a cast of characters, and a story that is both satisfying in the space of half an hour or an hour, while promising something even better to come. Writers think they have to cram 10 different stories in at once and only touch on them for a beat or two, leaving them all up in the air at the end of the pilot. Look how much story I have. It's all unresolved, so you'll have to turn my pilot into a show to find out more. Uh, you know, that's obviously flawed thinking. There are ways to either hint at these future plots to come or just save them for later while focusing on the strong strongest threads and through lines in the story of your pilot. Um, like Alex was saying, we should still feel a sense of having watched a narratively satisfying hour or half hour of television on top of wanting to know more about where those threads lead in the rest of the series. And to conclude on the structure of it, think about when and where you're starting your show. Is this the right time and place? Uh, should you start on day one or in mid-yes rest, as we said earlier? Going back to the purpose of your pilot, your script is there to start the foundation of something great. So start giving us an idea of what a traditional episode should be like. And no, it does not have to be as basic as a case of the week. It can also be about the way you weave your ABC storylines together or how you focus on certain character arcs. So for more on that, you should check out PT53 and PT68 on both story arcs and weaving ABC stories. It's kind of all about that 1960s Navy mantra, keep it simple, stupid. And yes, I just called you stupid, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> but you also gave me a kiss. Ooh. All right. So we understand all these surface elements of the writing, but what about something a little deeper and more complex than that? How are we doing the themes in our pilots? Well, themes are another one of those underrated elements of a compelling pilot. And let's take a step back for a second. When a reader gets a script and they see that title or that logline, they are already coming in with a certain level of expectation. So if I'm about to read a pilot about AI, I'm not just expecting a good story about artificial intelligence, that's kind of a given. I'm also expecting a new piece of dialogue to the conversation I've already had about AI with all the other shows, movies, books, and games I've vicariously lived through over the decades. That is why themes and values are so critical to a great piece of TV writing. What do you have to say on this topic? 
What is your pilot about AI saying differently than all this content about AIs that has existed or will ever exist? Yeah, and that's how you're going to stop people from drawing comparisons to saying, oh, your show is just another NYPD blur or your show is just another almost human. If you're saying the exact same thing, then they you have no defense to that. So you need to find your unique take on it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I thought you said take on me, but uh, that's another uh, piece of music. <laughs> anyway, I don't care if you're writing a poem or the next great American novel. If you're tackling something that wants to be artistic, then you need to add something new to that tapestry. To talk more about my own life, when I'm at a restaurant with a friend and we start debating the meaning of life, and then some random person crashes the conversation just to say, mm-hmm, mm, yes, I agree, yes, I agree. Uh, that person wasted our time. They did not contribute anything new to this dialogue. In a way, they just wanted to validate their own ego by having us hear that they agreed with what we've been saying. And the same goes with your own pilot script. Are you just replicating something that already exists, or are you actually saying something new? What is going to make a reader turn the page on your script? That is a unique and compelling perspective. Yeah, I mean, you know how much I love theme. I think it's the entire reason that we are doing this job and the craft of writing because we have something to say through our stories. There's nothing more disappointing to me than getting to the end of a script and realizing it was just all surface. It was random characters and plots happening for no real reason. You know, even if it was funny and interesting at times, it was ultimately meaningless. So think about your script and your story on a deeper level. Why did it interest you enough to want to write about it in the first place? And what makes you so passionate about this idea above all the others? That is what's going to make other people want to read or watch it as much as you wanted to write it. So do everything you can to make that theme uncompromisingly clear and powerful in your writing. And you can see PT36 writing themes and values for a little more detail on all of that. Let's conclude this episode with one clear question that I want to leave in everyone's mind. And that is, what experience do I want to give the reader? And this is something you should be actively aware of when you are writing that draft or even rewriting your script. And it's not something tangible, but it often comes down to pacing and tone. Pacing is crucial. I make a concerted effort to streamline everything in my script, both visually on that page as well as in the writing itself. Aaron Sorkin's scripts are extremely long, but they're often a breeze to get through because of that fast-paced dialogue. On the other end, take a read of any HBO period drama scripts. They are very dense, very heavy. That isn't necessarily a bad thing. They want the reader to linger in that world and absorb every detail. So don't give them a reason to figuratively turn off their TV. Stay consistent tonally while still having your story be compelling. Yeah, when you're writing a pilot script, it's all about keeping your reader hooked. Sometimes you pick up a script and you can't put it down. It just makes you want to keep turning the page. That's what you should be shooting for when you're writing your pilot. And so much of that is all of the elements we spoke about above, from the characters to the world to the plot, being delivered in a compelling and tightly executed way. So keep that story flowing and keep your reader invested in it, and then you've done your job. All right, what are our takeaways for this episode? Number one, know what your show is before you start writing the pilot. Do not underestimate the importance of meta elements like your title and logline. Understand how this sample will serve as a tool in your arsenal and your writing career. Number two, keep the reader reading. Whether through those unique worlds, interesting characters, or compelling stories, your script should literally be a page turner. And number three, contribute to the conversation. Your pilot needs to have something new to say. Why are you writing the story of all the possible stories you could tell? And why will other people care about it as much as you do? 
How about resources for our listeners this week? Well, Priyanka Matu wrote for Splitsider a simple pilot script checklist, which I will link in the show notes. It's not really an exhaustive list by any means, but it's kind of a simple basic reminder of some of the overall elements we've discussed in this and previous Paper Team episodes. Yeah, I've used that checklist before and I found it really helpful, so do check that one out. And that will bring us to the end of our episode. So I would like to thank our listeners for taking the time to tune in, as always. You can get all the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash 84. And we would love for you to take a minute and just leave us a review. We would really appreciate that. Uh, It helps us find more new listeners and get our information out there to everyone else to help them as much as it's helped you, hopefully. And as always, I'm on Twitter at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. If you have any thoughts, feedback, opinions, ideas for future episodes, you can send them to ask at paperteam.co and next week we will be talking about the tv writing fellowships with some amazing guests that have gone through all the different programs yeah this is a hot topic on a lot of uh, young and emerging writers minds how do i get into these fellowships what will they do for me and we're hopefully going to answer all those questions for you see you next week catch you then